All right, Forge family, let's pray. Lord God, as we enter this new year by our calendar, we pause and give deep thanks to you for your care over us in 2019. Your provision for us and the opening of doors for ministry with you leading the way. Every family, every individual in our midst has served in some way, leading and serving or both. Lord, we have a blessed, we, are, we really are a blessed company of, of your followers. As we begin this year of 2020, Lord, focus on, focus us, Lord. We just, we need your priorities, we need your presence, we need your plans, we need your ways. Keep reminding us that we are to be about the kingdom of God. And as we work, study, parent, bear witness to your love, Please keep reminding us of who we are in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to finish Zechariah today. Ah. Um, last time we were together, uh, we were in chapter 13, and in that, the Lord of hosts promised that in that day, that eschatological, that prophetic day out in the future, uh, he would open a cleansing fountain for the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem so that all sin and all impurity would be washed away. And in that day, he also promised that all the idols that Judah had been worshiping uh, would be cut off. And uh, the names of those idols would, not, would be forgotten. And the false prophets uh, would be, be removed as well as the unclean spirit that motivates and empowers false prophecy. Uh, there follows a, then a shift in chapter 13 to messianic prophecies and it says that the Lord God himself would be the one who awakens the sword against his shepherd, his servant, his associate, his son. Once again there will be slaughter. And only half of Israel will remain to be tested and purified. And at the end of that process, they will cry out in the name of the Lord, and he will answer them. So as we begin chapter 14, uh, that same theme of, of refining is still present. Uh, verse 1 uh, is tied directly to verse 14. And so we're going to skip from verse 1 down to 14 here in just a second. Verse 1 says... Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. Israel will be compensated for all the spoil taken from them and from Judah, uh, resulting in loss and in suffering. And it will be divided out and, and given back to them, compensated back to them. Now, if you leap down the page to verse 14, uh, at the end of this vast battle, Okay? It says, Judah also will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments in great abundance. Maybe Bitcoin, we don't know. <laughs> yeah, it was the surrounding nations that will have plundered Jerusalem. This latter reference is thought to be the outcome of the Battle of Armageddon in the plain known as uh, the Valley of Jezreel, and, uh, a place called Har Magadon. Um, we call it Armageddon and it's in, in which vast plunder will be taken from the fallen enemies of God 
So when we go back up and begin in verse 2, we see this refining process in its savage reality. And the Lord says, For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, and the houses plundered, and the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. You pause and you go, so who's, who's really in charge here, Lord? And the answer is, it is the Lord God who is still working out his refining process on Jerusalem and in the tribe of Judah. <clears throat> it, is, uh, it is the Lord God that who also speaks in Revelation 16 in similar terms that the Lord is going to gather the nations to the battle at Armageddon. In the case of Jerusalem and Armageddon, there will be horrors. Verses 3 to 5 speak about the event of Messiah's appearance and and his power. Verse 3 starts, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against these nations. And when he fights, as when he fights on on a day of battle, and in the day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is the front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north, the other half toward the south. And you will flee by the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord, my God, will come and the holy ones with him. So here you have of uh, a word essentially through the mouth of Zechariah where he's saying this is what's going to take place on that day. <clears throat> when the feet of Christ touch down on the Mount of Olives, it will precipitate a vast earthquake event <clears throat> splitting apart the ridge that overlooks Jerusalem from the east. Now I've stood on that Mount of Olives and you look and you see the wall that remains and you see the, the golden dome on one of the mosques, and you you know you, you'd see a, a a big 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 chunk of the of the city of Jerusalem from that site. <clears throat> In the days of King Uzziah, uh, he was king of Judah about 740 B.C. time of Isaiah. There was a huge earthquake that shook the nation, and um, if you want to go find evidence of that earthquake, it's there. You could go to the dig at Hatzor, which is. Uh, north of the Sea of Galilee, nearly in the foothills of Mount Hermon, up at close to Lebanon. And when you get into the dig, you see this whole layer of just crushed. Uh, crushed homes, crushed houses, crushed bones, crushed pottery. It's, it's just, and, and the only way that happens is where there's a cataclysmic thing where everything just collapses. <clears throat> and here, in the, uh, in the, on the Mount of Olives, that earth will split open and move north and south and create a valley that will run from Jerusalem to the east, toward the sun. And it says uh, that um, we don't know where Azel, what Azel is or where it's located. That's also a part of the prophecy. But it will be a place for, that will be opened, this valley that's going to open for, for the, the Jews to flee from Jerusalem to get it away from the anti-Semite armies, those that are coming to annihilate the Jews. The prophet Zechariah is exultant in that last phrase, that the Lord his God will make an appearance on the earth with his holy angels. Now continue in verses 6 to 8. It will come about, it says, in that day that there will be no light 
And the luminaries will dwindle, for it will come about in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern side, eastern sea, and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. So on that day, the light that we know as sunshine, okay, is going to be, you know, it says it, it, it dwindles, but the, that's the result of it. Dwindle means it, it just falls away. It goes, whoop, then it's dark. It says the light itself will be congealed. It will contract. It will sort of freeze up so that the light of the sun cannot penetrate. It's going to be a one-off. Zechariah says there's been no day like that since the start of creation time. And the prophet says, oh yeah, and the Lord knows all about this. Big surprise. He continues to say that when the dark day comes to an end, there will be light in the evening. So in the natural, that would point to a 16 plus hour total eclipse of the sun for the whole globe. As the, as the sun, as the earth rotates, it continues to remain in darkness until the evening. And then, and then there's light in the evening. That same day, an artesian, unstoppable flow of water, and the text says living waters, will flow out of Jerusalem, divided itself in half. Half of it will flow east, down, down the slope from Jerusalem, down to the Jordan, and then into the, into the Dead Sea. The other half will flow west to the Mediterranean, and the Lord says, and it's never going to stop. Well, that puts that category right there into the supernatural, because in the natural, in Israel, on the, in the wintertime, they get, they get rain, they get snow, and that generates seasonal streams that flow off the heights, and they run until they run out. And they will dry up uh, late spring, early summer, and you, know, you might have a wet place and some, wet, some plants that you know, live in the mud, but there's no stream there that goes all year long. And here the Lord says, no, it's not going to stop. It's going to keep flowing. Now, <clears throat> the term is also using the term living waters. And we know that Jesus used that term in, in John chapter 7, and so this is, this is a spiritual image and a physical reality. Did any of you guys get to see the, the movie called Salmon Fishing in the Yemen? Did you see that movie? I did a long time ago. Okay, well, okay. I, I would very much like to see a salmon river in Israel. That's just me, okay? okay? But we may get to see both the natural and the physical manifest in our lifetimes. Okay, verses 9 to 11 speak of the foundation and establishment of the kingdom of Messiah. It says this, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site, from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. The people will live in it, and there will be no more curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Now, Zechariah gives the highest praise to the Lord for that day, because on that day the Lord will be acknowledged as king of all the earth. Here is the reality of Yahweh and Messiah as God together. Okay, They're part of the Trinity they have the same nature, but they have different uh, expressions. Okay, same essence of God. Here, Zechariah points the way 
for the messianic kingdom. Only the names of the Lord, only the name of the Lord will be standing. All other names, all their high names, whatever's lifted up. Like this land mass, uh, they're going to go down as well. The text says that from Geba, which is six miles north of Jerusalem on, a, on the ridgeline. There's a ridgeline that runs north from Jerusalem toward Galilee. And it's all the high points as you go up the ridge. Six miles north of Jerusalem was Geba. Geba means height. Ooh. You know, oh, it's high up there. Okay, and it runs from six miles north of Jerusalem to 35 miles south of Jerusalem to Ramon. That landmass is going to collapse. It's going to become flat. It's going to become a plain. It's called Arabah. It's just, you can see from one end to the other on a good day. Okay? And at the same time, the, the, um, the founding stones, if you will, the foundation under Jerusalem is going to rise. So at the same time, in the middle of this cataclysmic geological shift, Jerusalem rises, all of it. And, and that's why all those names were tossed out there. You know, the Benjamin Gate, the Tower of Hananel, the first gate, those, they, were all, they were on the northeast portion of the city wall. The corner gate was on the north, um, northwest corner, and then um, the king's wine uh, presses were on the southern side of the wall. And it's just a way to say all of Jerusalem intact is going to rise. And it says the people will live there, and the city will finally be secure. No more exile, no more captivity, no more attacks, no more being pillaged, no more judgment, ever. Verses 12 to 13 now turns away from the fulfilled promises to Jerusalem. You know, where the Lord comes to fight and to rescue and provide a place for you to flee to and, and, and to bring Jerusalem high, not only physically but spiritually. Now he turns to what he has to say to the nations that opposed Jerusalem, that came, in fact, that would rise up to kill the Jews and go to war against God. Now, you, if you recall the, the account of uh, Rabshakeh, uh, who was the general of Sennacherib, the, the uh, emperor, the king of uh, Assyria, Rabshakeh comes and delivers a letter to Hezekiah, and it, it is filled with blasphemy. It is a, he, he, he curses God. And he demands that Jerusalem surrender. And Hezekiah takes that in and he lays it out before the Lord. He just goes into the presence of the Lord and lays it out and says, this is your problem, not mine. He's cursed you, not me. Okay? But the intent was, I'm, you know, I'm, if, if you don't step in here, Lord, I'm going to die. All this city is going to get crushed. That night, the angel of the Lord went out to the camp of the Assyrian people and 185,000 warriors woke up dead. <laughs> so to speak, you know that there were some who survived and saw that their 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 military might had been wiped away in a single night, and they fled north. <clears throat> now, um, here at verse twelve, these are what the Lord has promised as coming on His enemies, who have come up against Jerusalem and have come up against Himself. Quote, now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet, and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongue will rot in their mouth. 
It will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them and they will seize one another's hand and the hand of one will be lifted up against the hand of another. The Hebrew word hamagepa refers to a plague or a wasting disease. This plague will fall on those enemies. It's going to be loosed amongst them. It's going to create panic. And then um, it says that there's a mutual destruction of the Lord's foes at their own hands. I hear Zechariah as one of, of one of those graphic times where the Lord's wrath and the Lord's anger is poured out on his opponents. Ezekiel says of, of that, he says, these people that will come under this curse, will come under this plague, have eyes to see but do not see. And the, and the scripture is filled with all kinds of references to tongues that lie, deceive, slander, and blaspheme the creator who gave them speech. <clears throat> these body parts are specifically targeted by the plague for they have given full notice of their hatred of God Almighty. Verses 14 and 15 says, And Judah also will fight at Jerusalem. Remember we read 14 earlier? Fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments in great abundance. Now, in, obviously in the day of Zechariah, that was wealth. In the 21st century, it's, it's something else. Certainly gold and silver count, but land and you know, status and power and control and things like that. So anyway, it says that Judah will go out and, and, and sweep up all this phenomenal wealth that's left by the armies that have been destroyed. And this plague will also will be a plague against the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey, and the cattle that will be in those camps. Uh, this is a reversal of verse 1 that speaks of spoil being swept away from Jerusalem and Judah, and it's all coming back. Now this is a scorched earth prophecy. Opposing fighters will be swept away with all their modern war-making, war-fighting capability, their transportation, and their food stocks. In many senses, this may be like what took place in... The war of the wars of liberation against the Canaanite peoples to, to take back the promised land. The Lord said, "Here it is, but you've got to go win it and by war." Now, at that time, it was due to a universal presence of venereal disease among the Canaanite people, men, women, children, and animals, all due to the deviant sexuality of Canaanite worship and their culture. Here in Zechariah, this judgment of God will result in hideous death on those who will not bow the knee to the Lord, but instead hate him and hate his people and go to war against the Lord. Now the last five verses of chapter 14 turn to those Gentiles who have survived. Obviously, it is these, these armies that come that will be decimated. But the, the nations that sent those armies will survive. And it says that those Gentile nations will become believers. They'll become believing Gentiles. <clears throat> okay? Beginning verse 16, it says, Then it will come about that any who are left 
of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. So, number one, not all Gentiles, they weren't all wiped away, okay? It was just their armies, okay? Second, um, those, those Gentile peoples will become pilgrims. They are going to come year by year at the end of harvest season in the fall to come for the Feast of Booths to come and worship and bow down and make sacrifice to the king, who is Jesus Christ. This line about worship the king by the Gentile nations is perhaps the most emotive force in the text. You know, this sudden final shift where once they turned away from him, now these Gentile nations will come each year to keep Sukkot or the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Now, this particular feast that's referred to here is described in Leviticus 23, 33 to 44, which lays out this required feast for Israel and now for the surviving and believing Gentiles. Sukkot was to be observed on the 15th day of the new year after the Day of Atonement. And uh, that's supposed to be for eight days. Day one and day eight were to be Sabbath days. They weren't to do any work. Okay, but they on day one they were to build a uh, a booth, if you will, a, a minimal shelter of willow branches and um, palm fronds and myrtle branches, and they would sleep in there. They would live in there, sleep in there, eat in there for seven days, for seven nights, and uh, on those seven nights um, they were in that meager shelter to remind them of God's care over them as they had to camp in the wilderness on their journey out of slavery from Egypt through the Sinai and until the Lord took them into the promised land. Um, Each day, there was to be an offering by fire, uh, which meant, okay, they could bring uh, certain meats, poultry, kosher meat. I'm assuming it would have been poultry poultry and beef and goat and lamb and things like that. But they would bring it prepared, and um, it would be slaughtered and uh, and presented to the priest. And the priest would take a portion of it for the for the for the fire, for the for the altar, and a and a portion of it, the majority of it, was handed back to the family raw, and they would take that that um, shared portion of their sacrifice back to the booth, and uh, the offerings would have been meats. It would have been grains, wine. What's the fourth one? Grain, wine, uh, wine and grains. Okay. And oil. Excuse me. And and so when they got back to the booth, every night was a feast. They took the remainder that had come back to them from whatever uh, offering they had made. The Lord had given it back to them, and they were to prepare it and eat it as a feast in the booths, and and share their feasting with neighbors. And with the Lord. That feast was a way for Israel to say thank you to the Lord for his provision of the harvest, for his timely provision of rain. And so they would come up and they would feast with him. Verses 17 and 19 says, And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. 
It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Now there's an obvious evidence here of coming up to Jerusalem to worship the king. But those who will not do so, to them it is sin. See, the word here that's translated punishment by New American Standard is the word for sin. Okay? And to, to hold back, to not come, to not come to the Lord, to not enter into this feast and to worship and bow down before him would be taken by the Lord as sin. <clears throat> Second, Egypt has been a biblical symbol for the flesh for millennia. Okay, and our flesh is our broken, bent, selfish, I want my way all the time stuff. Okay, it's just clinging to unrighteousness that says, whatever I choose, it's the right thing. You know, the Marquis de Sade said, what is, is right. And that just blessed whatever deviant thing he wanted to do. Okay, and that was Egypt. All right. So, um, here, when the flesh refuses to bow before the Lord in Jerusalem, it will be dealt with by the Lord by the withholding of rain. Now, that little phrase regarding Egypt that says there's no, then no rain will fall on them, that's, a, that's a, a phrase that's been added by a translator. It's not in the original text. And it makes no sense, honestly, regarding Egypt, because Egypt didn't get rain. It was a desert. What it lived on was the Nile River that flowed south to north, and in season it would flood, it would inundate, it would water the fields, or they could irrigate with it from it. Okay? And so, uh, instead, I, I, I choose to read that text as, quote, and if the family of Egypt does not go up and enter, they too will be struck with this plague with which the Lord will smite the nations. <clears throat> now, the Lord says, okay, there's no rain going to fall on you. You will have drought uh, repetitively until you bow. Okay? There's no rain. There's no harvest. And all living things suffer and die due to the drought. Jeremiah 14 speaks of just such a drought. It's awful. Okay? The text here is repetitive. Come and worship. Come and sacrifice. Come and bow down. Come and feast with me or die. Verse 20 to 21 describe what will happen in the beginning, excuse me, in the believing nations as well as Jerusalem when they come and worship the king. It says, quote, In that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses the phrase, Holy to the Lord. I'll stop right there. Holy to the Lord was what was, in, was inscribed on a plate that was worn on the high priest's turban miter on his hat whatever it was there was a plate that just said this man and what he does is holy to the lord he was set apart he was dressed differently he what he did for the people you know was holy to the lord now here the lord says horses are going to come with bells that announce their presence inscribed with the words holy to the lord now in the ancient world um the horse okay was, was a piece of any war-making intent. And it was a way to extend human power and domination and control. 
here in the kingdom, the horse will be adorned with bells inscribed with the holy the name, holy to the Lord. And that, that sound, people will recognize it. Oh, that's holy to the Lord. And it's, it sets them apart. These horses apart, not as bearing a warrior to kill and to lay waste, but rather a, to bear a pilgrim coming to worship the king. Next, let's look at cooking pots. Okay, when an, offer, an offering by fire was made during those feast of booths, a portion of that offering was handed back raw, that was, that was given back to the one who brought the sacrifice, and it was to be cooked uh, uh, in, a, in a cooking pot at the booth or in the booth and shared amongst the family or even neighbors. If they all, you know, a whole bunch of neighbors went up together and camped together sort of thing. Okay, that portion was either boiled, which is what you would do with grains, You'd make a porridge. You would, you know, you'd parch it, or you'd make a, a porridge out of it, or, or you, or you would grind it and make some flour and cook it. Or the meat was boiled or stewed. In other words, it was you didn't roast it. Roasting was for Passover. You roasted a lamb at Passover. The rest of the the time you went and you, you know, if you went for feast of booths, what you got back, you weren't supposed to roast that. You're supposed to to cook it slowly. You know, either you cook it, but you cook it with a liquid, with water or otherwise. That portion was boiled or stewed in cooking pots that each household brought. So when you came up to house, came up to, to be at the house of the Lord for feast of booths, you brought your own cooking pot. Now it says here, the cooking pots of Jerusalem and Judah will be set apart as holy, for they will be hosting the nations who come to worship. And lastly. Last phrase here. It's a perplexing statement that says there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord on that day. There's a bunch of interpretations on that. I think all of them are forced. They're all sort of, well, I think this or I think that, and everybody goes, what? Okay. Um, <clears throat> but now we do, what we do know is Canaanites were deviant. They worshipped a big pantheon of false gods and had vile practices. We do know that they were designated by the Lord for annihilation because he had given them, we know, at least 400 more years after Abraham. Okay? The Lord says the time of the Amorite is not yet full. 400 years pass. Okay? And then here comes Israel to take that land. Okay? They, were, they were designated for destruction. Didn't happen thoroughly. They left the high places. You know, they took, the, they took the, the, the hole and left the donut. Around you know around them, <clears throat> okay. So my best guess, my best offering on this phrase is to point out that on that day, such polytheism, worshiping multiple gods, okay, and gross amoral practices, will be will be absolutely never seen again in the presence uh, presence of the Lord, in the temple of the Lord of Hosts. All right, Forge family. We've studied the visions of Zechariah, which point to the Lord's power and might, his loving compassion on Jerusalem and Judah, and his unwavering holiness that demands right worship and right living that absolutely depends on obeying the Lord and his commands. We've studied the departure of Judah and all Israel from the place of dependence on God for his presence and provision. That results in his withdrawal from them. We've studied the Messianic passages. 
They point forward clearly 500 years to the first advent, the first coming of Christ. And then beyond his second, to his second advent, his second coming, his second appearing, which is not yet, but it's coming. And finally, we've studied the portions that promise that the Lord will fight for Jerusalem and for his people and throw back the armies of the nations that rise up to crush him, to curse him and to crush his people. The end of the book speaks of all nations coming up to bow and to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, some of that injury in this, uh, imagery in this book is, is just unknown to us. We kind of go, oh, uh-huh. You know, well, you explained it, but I don't get it. You know? <clears throat> Many of the promises have yet to be fulfilled. And we stand before the wave of prophecies that are rushing at us through time. Soon and very soon, we're going to see the Lord. Um, when John Wesley started the Methodist movement, if you will, uh, the, 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 draw, the separating out of people in England from high church to come to Jesus by grace through faith and to learn the scriptures, his brother, Charles Wesley, was specifically gifted to produce lyrics and melody combined that would reinforce and teach and remind the theology, of the theology that was being taught in the groups. <clears throat> and uh, one of his hymns particularly is, uh, helps us because we have all these expectations, if you will, from the text that we've studied. It's his, it's his hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, Born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation. Hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation. Joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Let's pray. Lord God of hosts, God of armies, you plan from before time to send the Son to be born of a virgin raised to manhood as one who kept all the law and who offered up himself to be the Lamb of God, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for laying out way through the impossibilities that sin brought on us from our fathers and mothers and from ourselves to come into relationship with you, the Trinity, as sons and daughters of the King. Alleluia. Now, will you shout that with me three times? Alleluia! 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 All praise and thanks and worship and glory and honor to you. We look forward to coming up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. Amen.